0: Didn't they do a great job? We have been talking about living a God-directed life. Living a life under the direction of God. And I've been saying a couple things about it, and I'm going to probably keep repeating these things about this. First of all, the God-directed life is the better life. It is the blessed life, and it is the only path upon which you find an abundant life. It is the only path that you go on that ends in the kingdom for eternity. It's the God-directed life. It's the God-directed life that is the easier life. Around our culture and our society, people say, oh, no, no, no. If you follow after God, you're going to not be able to do this, not be able to do that, not do the other... The other things. I think that's a sad statement about um, how Christians have have described what we are and how we work and how things go for us. We've apparently described to the whole watching world that when you become a Christian, you have to stop doing X, Y, and Z. And though I think there are some things you get to stop, get to stop doing when you become a follower of Jesus, it's not the primary thing. The primary thing is you get to be a follower of Jesus. And you get to go on that path that leads you home. The God-directed life is a life by choice. You don't get into the path of a God-directed life by accident. You don't typically drift into the current that takes you to heaven. You don't drift into the path that transforms your life. You make choices, you make decisions, and you say, this is the path I'm going to go on. This is the direction I want to go. Those decisions often start very small, and they mount up. We've talked about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the beginning of this year. I want you to consider that when they show up in Babylon, having been taken there, and I will go through that story in just a minute, they have been leading a life under the direction of God for their entire lives. They have lived in a country who's seen great old King Hezekiah, It's been a hundred years or at least 80, 90 years. I don't know when exactly Hezekiah died, but it's been a long time since Hezekiah died. I'd have to go look up my math. And they've seen and heard the stories of great old King Hezekiah. By now, there are probably tales about Hezekiah that aren't even true. Then they've heard the stories about his evil son Manasseh. And they've wondered how such a terrible king could come from such a great family. And they've heard how Manasseh led the people of Israel astray. And they've heard how Manasseh at the very end of his life finally figured it out and finally started following God. And then they've heard about great King Josiah who brought back the books of Moses, had them read amongst all the people, repaired the city and the temple, who reestablished faith in God. And they've seen the kings since Josiah begin to stray. Jehoiakim, Zedekiah how they've begun to wander away from what the prophets have told them. They've heard the prophet Jeremiah their entire lives. And now in their teens, middle to late somewhere, they're taken off to a foreign country with all of that historical knowledge, all of that experience, all of that information. You want to send your kid off to college prepared to face what comes? Give him all of that luggage to carry with him. And I didn't say baggage. They'll have enough of that already. But I'm talking about giving them the, the experiences you've had walking with God. Sharing with them the stories of faith. Sharing with them great books about great people of faith. Sharing with them the content that moves you and motivates your faith. Sharing with them the anchors that you, you, you lock your faith into. So that when they walk away from your home... They have all of the things necessary to face whatever comes. Now, we have these four heroes out of perhaps a 1,000 people who were taken or, or, or more, perhaps 10,000 people who were taken off to Babylon. We don't know what the lives and the experiences of the rest of them were. We hope many of them found these same paths. But I think one of the things that these four had was one another. Perhaps the last thing I want to talk about about the God-directed life is it's not easy to do by yourself. That the God-directed life usually, and I would say probably always, but there's certainly somebody's going to say, no, I did it all by myself, has to have fellowship. We have to have people we walk with. We have to have accountability partners. We have to have people who would stand in our face, stand toe-to-toe with us and argue for the for the side of God in our decision and argue for the faith we're thinking about walking away from. There were four of them. A fearsome foursome, a group of those who stood with God no matter what came. I think those are the things that each of us can carry forward as we walk a God-directed path. But each of those things requires a choice on our behalf as well. This morning we're talking about those familiar three young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I wanted you to see this passage from Luke as we start. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. Small decisions along the path prepare you for larger decisions that are on their way. Small decisions in our lives prepare us for larger ones along the way. These small decisions probably don't have a great deal of relationship to, uh, to the, the, the big issues of salvation. A lot of these small decisions are really ancillary. They're out there on the fringes of, of the walk of faith. But they have an impact on, our, on the regularity of a believer saying yes to God. The small decisions can be really out there in ancillary. You can say, yeah, I don't see how this is going to have a big impact on my salvation. And you're probably right. But they have an impact on the pattern. They have an impact on the process. They have an impact on the habit of saying yes to God. So as we talk about these guys, I think there's been a lifetime of Speaking into their lives by other people there's been a lifetime of people calling them to a relationship And there's been a lifetime of them so far saying yes, and I just want to remind you what they've done We're up to eight items now. we were just at seven last week. They've been through the siege of jerusalem They've been captured by babylon. They've been chosen for exile. They have gone 800 to a thousand miles in a march to babylon They did not probably get to ride. They got to walk they've been made eunuchs they're confronted about, they've been confronted about their food, they face the death threats from the king's dream, and now they stand on the plain of Dura as the chapters open and Nebuchadnezzar has a new plan in chapter 3, facing a question, will they worship or will they die? So as we do that, we're going to be in, in Nebuchadnezzar's story or, or in uh, Daniel's story in chapter 3. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to have some things on the screen. On slides, but I won't have everything. Chapter uh, three, verse one says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, first I want to talk about this little plain of Dura. We don't know where this is. Dura is a short sentence. It's the, it's a, it's the place of a wall. So Dura, Dura is wall and a is the, is the, so it'd be the wall. So it's the plane of the wall. There's some thinking that I think makes a lot of sense that since we can't find a city named Dura, we can't find any other place in the province of Babylon where this makes sense. If you just take it as a straight translation and not a location, in other words, if you don't capitalize "plain of Dura, you just simply say the plane of the wall. It makes a lot of sense to be in the city itself. King Nebuchadnezzar built an outside wall around Babylon. See that outer wall out there? There's kind of a green, and then it says outer wall out there. I don't know if you can read that. Inner city across the river, and then outside there was another wall built by, by King Nebuchadnezzar. The inner wall is about a mile around. That outer wall is a couple of miles around. That outer wall was added by the king, and that section out there had not a lot of houses. In fact, it was where they would bivouac militaries, where the military would have their parade grounds, stuff like that. The thinking is that when he set up this statue, he set it up right there in view of the city out on that plain, that space created between the inner city wall and the outer city wall. It starts to make a lot of sense when you consider what he's doing. He's inviting them all in. He's inviting all of the leadership of Babylon to come to him. Why would he go to them? It makes a lot of sense that he would want them here. Now, in setup of this thing, I want you to also know what's going on. This probably takes place, in, in terms of the historical record, it makes the best sense about ten years after, after King Nebuchadnezzar became king. The reason is, in about the tenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, there was a revolt in the city of Babylon. In the annals of Nebuchadnezzar, the stories of Nebuchadnezzar that are written down, they're actually in cuneiform tablets. Cuneiform means wedge-shaped. They had a, a system of writing that was little wedge-shaped uh, impressions in a clay tablet. That clay tablet would then, in in this case, be fired in an oven so that it would be a hard tablet that you could keep forever. And we're lucky that they did because we can still read it. But it says, In the tenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, there was an uprising in the city. And Nebuchadnezzar found himself defending himself from his own army in the city. And so, the, as the description is, Nebuchadnezzar... King Nebuchadnezzar had to kill hundreds of his own army in his own defense. So within the walls of Babylon, there was an uprising, and his own army turned against him in about his 10th year. He's a 43-year reign. So about 10 years in, there's this uprising. The thinking is that he decides to do this as a two-part Issue number one: He builds a statue all of gold. His, in his dream, he had seen a statue that was gold, silver, uh, bronze, iron, and iron and clay. This statue being all of gold, and probably wasn't solid gold. It was probably gold leaf on something else, probably wood underneath and gold leaf over it. That's typical, and that's a lot of gold. Ninety feet high would be a lot of gold. Okay, so it's probably a wood-covered statue or a gold-covered statue that's wood underneath. He sets up this thing, he makes it all gold, which sort of symbolizes that his kingdom is going to continue, that there's not going to be a change after him. It's going to be an eternal kingdom. Remember, Hitler thought that the Third Reich would last a thousand years. Okay? Uh, the Tsars of Russia picked the name Tsar because they wanted to have the reign of Rome, a thousand-year reign. Tsar was the Russian form of Caesar. So kings have often thought, how can I extend the picture? How can I make this happen a long time? So this king builds a golden statue because he wants it to look like he's going to be there forever. He's going to continue until God comes. Sets it up on this plain, I think near the city. It's 60 cubits by 6 cubits. Now you think, oh, people have always complained, oh, it's too skinny. Remember, a lot of the old ancient statues we find are very skinny. A lot of the ancient statues are quite skinny. And people say, well, it's too tall, 60 cubits, that's too much. Well, remember there are other statues within this era that are this big. Down in Egypt, there's a, there were two statues that are 45 feet tall. The, oh, what is it called? The one that's on the island that just slipped out of my mind is actually 15 feet taller than this one. So it's not actually outside the norm for this to be a giant statue. Remember that inside the city there's a cigarette that's 300 feet tall. So it's not out of proportion with the community and with the city. Why would he build a statue, call all of the leaders together? Because they had been, there had been a revolt, and he needs an oath and a promise from those who are surviving to protect him against this happening again. Make sense? This is why we think it happened to pro- probably about that time, because it makes a lot of sense politically for him to do this now, to call these people out. And the plain of Dura, if it is the plain of the wall, and it is this place right next to the city, it makes a lot of sense for him to bring them in. Probably upwards of maybe 1,000, 1,500, even 2,000 leaders were brought to the city of Babylon. So you got all the background, you kind of see what's happening. Does this also explain why Daniel isn't present? Because Daniel's loyalty was not in question. And so he didn't have to be taken out on the plain of Dura and made to endure the plain of Dura because his, his loyalty was not in question after a decade of standing next to the king. We've often wondered, why isn't Daniel there? This makes a, a really solid answer for why Daniel is not invited to this particular party. The king knows Daniel's commitment to his God and the king trusts Daniel's loyalty, so there's no reason to bring him. So as the story con- continues to unfold, King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, and the magistrates, all the officials the province, of the provinces to come to the dedication of this image. So he stands up his big image, and he has everybody come for the dedication of this image. Then a herald cried out to you, as it is commanded, O people's nations, languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psalter, the incense symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, about this image. There's questions about whether or not Nebuchadnezzar's face is on it. I've gone back and forth. In fact, up up until like last week, I was still thinking that Nebuchadnezzar's face was most likely on it. But I was doing some reading about Babylonian, it, I know this probably, you think this is the dumbest thing you've ever heard somebody read about, but I was doing some reading about de- Babylonian theology, okay? And Babylonian theology considered it a sin for a king to set himself up as a god. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar's already in a political fix, the last thing he wants to do is offend the people's theological opinions. So it, I'm now leaning towards the idea that this is probably, this is more likely a statue of Marduk. Marduk is the Babylonian god for the city. It's the, it's the god of that particular city. So he builds this giant statue, declaring that Babylon will last forever, puts the face of Marduk on it, and then calls everybody to come and bow when the symphony orchestra starts. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment and let you know that if there's any place in the Bible that says you shouldn't listen to a certain kind of music, it would be this one. Look at the instruments. Note the missing ones. All right, I just wanted to put throw that out there. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, never one for not stating what he's really all about, says, Look, you either do what I tell you or I'm burning you to death. Where do these fiery furnaces come from? Remember that Babylon is made of bricks. Those of you who uh, went to the uh, the uh, German... Oh, man, I've lost the name of the museum we went to. Help me out, Lee. The German the National Museum... Uh, no, Berlin Museum. Berlin Museum. He, he's looking at me, but he's not saying anything. And it's slowly coming back as I look at Lee's face. It's how powerful he really is. <laughs> we, we, those of you who have been to the Berlin Museum know that they have the gates of Babylon set up. And, you, and when you see them, they're all made of brick. They're all made of bricks. And they're bricks that are, that are uh, coated on the outside like a pot. You think of pottery that's got that nice glaze on the outside? Bricks in these walls, the outer bricks especially, are coated in a nice blue glaze, except for the the reliefs, which are different colors, usually gold. There were lots of these places for firing bricks around Babylon. So probably what happened here is that they set up this statue near one of these furnaces for firing bricks. And just for emphasis sake, started the furnace and said, Hey everybody, bow down or you go in there. It's a pretty good illustration of the consequences of not not obeying, right? There it is sitting right there smoking out like crazy. It's probably not only got some wood and things like that, but remember, there are asphalt pits around Babylon. It's no accident that huge amounts of oil are being dragged out of the ground in the Middle East. There are asphalt pits. Have you ever been to the La Brea Tar Pits down in Los Angeles? That's what's around Babylon. Places like that, if you haven't been, go. It's worth the trip. The La Brea Tar Pits... Are all over around Babylon, so they are bringing some of this kind of asphalt and throwing it into the fires, typically to fire these bricks. It helps really push up the heat in these furnaces. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of da 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 in symphony, all the people, nations, languages bowed down and worshipped the golden image. Now you got to remember, this is the Middle East. This is a time in the East when. You're not bowing like this. You're not even kneeling. You're falling flat on your face, head on the floor, arms forward. You are almost lying down it. The Bible uses the word prostrate sometimes. You you fall prostrate on the ground, prostrate on the ground, not prostrate, prostrate on the ground. Forehead on the ground, hands down in front of you. Bowing to the image—that's what everybody does. Boom! About two thousand people at the probably the upper end, even a thousand at the bottom end. Large group of people, and in the midst of that group, there are three guys who don't bow. Now imagine if in this group, half the size at the, at the, of the smallest one, if three people were standing, would you see them? Yeah, especially if you had your eyes open during prayer, right? There were certain Jews who have set out who whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, uh, here, uh, kind of some irritation about that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard. They do not serve your God or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, was it true that the Jews did not serve the gods of, of Babylon? Is it true? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's true. They don't serve the gods of Babylon, but the Babylonians and the Assyrians before them never insisted that captive peoples had to. You didn't have to serve the gods of Babylon. It wasn't part of what, of your indoctrination. You had to learn about the gods of Babylon, but you weren't forced to worship them. Okay. So it wasn't unusual that they wouldn't, but the fact that they're in this moment being asked for a statement about their loyalty and they're not doing it is what's making them stand out at this time so somebody goes and tattles on them then nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury don't miss those words you've heard nebuchadnezzar get mad before right do you remember what happened in chapter two with the uh with this with the the leaders who came to tell him the story about his dream and he did they, they weren't able to tell him remember what he told him If you do not tell me the dream and the meaning of the dream, you will be chopped under the little pieces and your houses will be turned into ash heaps. Don't make this guy mad. So he's mad. He's enraged, the Bible says. He gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bring them here. They get there and Nebuchadnezzar seems to change his tone just a little bit. It's like these guys walk up. They've been working for him. If if, If the scholars are right, for a decade now, and he's got a soft spot for these guys. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Well, it's obvious. They've been standing up instead of kneeling down. Then this statement. There's a lot more to it, but this is the key phrase. Now, if you're ready. I want to stop there for a second. Doesn't the devil always give you a second shot at sin? Doesn't he? You know, you, you, you resist that first time, right? You, you, you somehow manage to say, okay, I'm not doing it. I'm closing that door. I'm not doing it. And the devil comes along and he says, well, now, if you're ready, now in this secret time, this secret place, or with the assistance of your so-called friend, we'll get you into this. devil always gives us a second shot at sin. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Now, if you're ready. Well, now, if you're ready. Well, now, if you're ready. You always get another chance at that. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of da 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 da, symphony orchestra, bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, ha, we have no need to answer you in this. Your life is hanging in the balance, guys. The fire's right there. Could you do this?" Do you wish you could do this? You know, we never know until we actually get to that point, right? We never know what we'll do until we end up facing that first bullet, right? I, uh, I've been reading a book called Team of Teams. This book is about the uh, the battles that went in on, on in Iraq. It's really not about the battles; it's about what they learned from them. And what these what this general is particularly saying is that in these battles they were getting this, this extremely powerful mechanized U.S. army that could, could outrun, outman, outgun anybody who stood up against them was getting their tails whipped again and again and again and again and again. And, again. and what they realized was that they were in this very complex situation where the other, group, other guys, the people they were fighting, were using a lot of internet connectivity. They were using a lot of cell phone connectivity. They were doing a lot of things that allowed them to morph very quickly, given whatever change of circumstances happened on the ground. And the U.S. military had been set up in such a way that everything was done in a very regimented, very specific sort of way. And he describes why. He said, you pack your your, uh, pack the same way. Every man packs his pack the same way. You manage and handle your guns the same way. Everyone handles theirs the same way. Why? So that if you get in the middle of battle and your brain completely shuts down and you reach for your knife, it's right where it's always been. And you've been drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled to find that knife, find that knife, find that knife. Until you now can find it In an absolutely crazy situation with bullets flying around you and bombs going off, you can reach back, pull that knife out whenever you need it because it's right where it's always been. he said, that's great in a normal situation. In fact, it's not invaluable or not without value even in this situation. But all of that regimentation made it so that they were unable to be flexible when they needed to be. Now, what I want to argue for in this regimentation description Is that when you're used to saying yes to God, when you're accustomed to saying yes to God, again and again and again and again, when the big scary moment happens, as John Beach used to say, when the big bear shows up around the corner, you know how to respond. You know, because of practice, how you're going to respond. You're accustomed to saying yes to God. And when this big scary thing happens, you know exactly where the knife is. You know exactly how that response goes. You're accustomed to it. And so it comes out naturally in those most frightening of situations. I don't think this is the first time these guys have faced saying yes to God. In the story itself, we're, we've seen two other times when they do it. But I don't think two times really represents the lifetime that they've been experiencing. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Now stop there for a second. Our God whom we serve is capable of delivering us from the fiery furnace. Is that true? Is that true in the fiery furnaces in your life? Because we face them. There may be not be smoking fiery furnaces, but there are hard things that happen in your life. Hard things in all kinds of areas of your life. And when those hard things come, are you, are you comfortable with what these guys are saying? My God is able to save me from whatever that is. Whatever the, whatever the doctor's statement is, whatever the banker's statement is, whatever the spouse's statement is, whatever, 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 the lawyer shows up, knocks on your door with a subpoena, and you say, my God is able to save me from this subpoena. Yes? And he will deliver us from your hand. This is a guy you don't want to make mad. At. But they want to make this thing clear. They want to make it as clear as they can. I don't, I don't think they're intentionally poking him in the eye. It's not been the pattern that they've had, at least certainly not Daniel has had, as we've watched this story unfold. But they're making it really clear. God is able to rescue us. Our God is able to rescue us. Now, I want, you to just, I want you to sit on that thought for a minute. Our God is able to rescue us. 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 Our God is able to rescue us from cancer. Is that true? Our God is able to rescue us from financial ruin. Is that true? Our God is able to rescue us when our marriage is on the rocks. Is that true? Our God is able to rescue us from a really ugly, nasty childhood. Is that true? Our God is able to rescue us when we face the last breath we We have. Is that true? He's able to rescue us from accidents. He's able to rescue us from fires. He's able to rescue us from whatever comes. He is able to rescue us. True? These guys are standing there, bow down or die. Just like, just like a few years before. Get the answer to what happened with the king's dream or die. Blood dripping off Arioch's sword from the last guy he killed. Smoke on his clothes from the house he just turned into ash heaps. They face certain death and they say to the king, Our God's able to rescue us. Our God is able to save us from the furnace and rescue us from your hand. We're in exile. Our city fell under siege. We've marched all the way to come to Babylon. We were made into eunuchs. We were forced into, into education. We, we've, we've had to deal with all kinds of conflicts with our, with our faith, and yet we still believe. We still believe. Even though we're in exile, even though we're facing trouble, even though trauma is true for us, we still believe. You see, the exiles on the earth, while sin is in control of the planet, have this faith to hold onto. We are nothing more than exiles on a planet that's gone awry. We are exiles on a planet that none of the universe wants to be on. We are exiles on a planet where sin reigns, where the devil still has his foot on everybody's throat. And God is saying, you can still trust me no matter where you're exiled, no matter what you face, no matter what comes, no matter what sin brings to you, no matter what your own foolishness brings to you, no matter what someone else brings to you, your God is able to rest rescue." Rescue you from the mess you find yourself in, no matter how you found yourself there. These guys are our example. These guys are our testimony. God is able to rescue us from the fiery furnace and from your hand, O King. But if not, He's able to rescue me from cancer. But if He doesn't, next thing is Jesus. I don't want it. I certainly don't want to face and deal with it. But the next thing is Jesus. He's able to rescue my marriage. If my spouse refuses to cooperate, I might lose my marriage. But it doesn't change the fact that God is able to rescue that marriage. If not. If not. If it doesn't happen to me, if it doesn't happen for me, if it doesn't work out for me, if, if I do take the last breath and it's the last breath, if not, if not, let it be known to you, we do not serve your gods, no, we worship the gold image which you have set up. Revelation 13 sets up this same picture. Revelation thirteen sets up this same crisis, this same issue at the end of time. It says there will be an image set up, and there will be a, a death decree to those who refuse to worship. It's worship as the issue at the end of time. It's worship at the at the issue as the issue at the end of time. Those who will not worship the image, bow down to it, will have the will have their opportunity to buy and sell taken away, and some of them will be put to death. Same issue. And here's our example. Let it be known to you, O King, that our God is able to rescue us from the fiery furnace. God's able to make a way where we can eat if you even take away our privileges to buy and sell. And oh, by the way, if He doesn't, next thing is Jesus, I'm good. The historical stories in the book of Daniel are demonstrations about how a Christian, how a follower, how a believer, how a person of faith lives through the traumas described in the prophetic pictures of Daniel. The historical sections of Daniel are there to demonstrate and to show how we walk through the kind of traumas that come on the world as things start to fall apart. We're not not living in any worse place than they were. There were ten different temples in the city of Babylon to everybody you can imagine. Ten of them. You want to see a society that's completely secular, that at least as far as the Jews are concerned, is completely going in the wrong direction? Babylon. And yet here they live, faithful to God, and the more faithful ones are the ones who have been, ex- have been uh, uh, lifted up and given leadership in the kingdom. Crazy. Crazy. Our God is able to rescue us, even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, we're not going to worship your God. We're not going to bow down to your image. We just can't. We're not going to do it. See, our God said there are no other gods. You should have no other gods before me. You should not make any idols of anything or any of any kind and bow down before them. And, and, and it's kind of rock number one and rock number two. We, we're just not going to do it. Sorry. There are no other gods. Duh. So don't have idols. Duh. And here you are saying, yes, you have to bow down. And we're saying, no, sorry. We don't want to make you look bad. We don't want to be in this conflict with you. We just can't do it. Sorry. I guess it only leaves you one choice. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. He was just raging before. Now he's full of fury. The expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was a little bit, you know... But you guys, change your mind. It was a little bit conciliatory, apparently, and now it's not. Embarrass me in front of everybody who's leading. Embarrass me in front of these people who I'm demanding a loyalty oath from. Embarrass me in the face of the fact that I've had a revolution in my own city. Not doing it, guys. You've gone too far now. His face t- changes, and he spoke the command that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, do you think they took a thermometer and stuck it in the side of that thing? No, no, he's just saying turn up the heat crank it up as hot as you can get that thing Heat it up as high as you can get it as hot as you can now um Understand these these furnaces if this is typical the typical furnace in Babylon It's kind of a beehive shaped thing kind of a round thing And it's got an opening in one side into which the bricks were put and then sealed over and then there's an opening in the top And that's how they fed the furnace they would keep throwing stuff in the top. There were steps that went up the side, and so they would keep walking up the side and feeding the furnace while the bricks were curing, or while the, uh, the, the bricks were heating up, cooking. <laughs> while the bricks are in there, they continue to throw, throw fuel in the top to keep it nice and hot. Well, what they had had to do was go up the side of this extremely hot furnace while it's extremely hot and throw in more stuff to heat it up. Now it's raging hot. Imagine smoke and fire pouring out of the top of this thing like a volcano. That's what they're now looking at. And he says, all right, heat it up seven times more, then Nebuchadnezzar... ah. I skipped a slide somehow, but this is where I wanted to be. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot and the flame of fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up and threw them in. We think what happened, because throwing them in through the side wouldn't have been that big a deal, wouldn't have been easy to do, you've got to toss these guys into this thing. They almost would have had to walk in on their own. What we think happened is they went up to the top of this thing and dropped them in. Carried them up where they would carry the, the, the wood or whatever else they were heating this thing with, and threw them down the chute. Took them up into the mouth of the volcano and threw them down inside. Bible says they landed inside. Of that thing. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bounded in the midst of this fire? So what probably happens now, he throws them in the top and then he looks in the little hole where the bricks would be packed in. He looks inside to see what's going on and he doesn't see three guys slowly turning into ashes. He sees four. He looks inside and he doesn't just see the three guys he's threw in there. How many does he see? Four. Because God doesn't promise you won't go through a crisis in your life when you follow him. He just promises you won't go through that crisis alone. These guys stood up for God and God stood up with them. These guys stood up for God and God stood up with them. Three guys thrown into the fire... Look, he answered, I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the former, the first, fourth one, is like the Son of God. I don't know what the rest of those guys are, but there's a guy in there, and he's glowing more than the fire is glowing. There's a guy in there that makes the fire look cool, and he's walking around. Now, I want to stop for a second. I had a thought this week I'd never had before. What did they do? What are they talking about? Wouldn't you love to know what that conversation was? You know, fall in the top, bam, hit the ground, stand up unhurt. Bonds on you are your hands and feet are burned off. You're wearing, according to the Bible, a turban and a full tunic and nothing's on fire. And the fourth being stands up and says, you guys okay? (laughs) You're like, Okay, this is wild. Who are you and what's going on? Oh, I'm Michael the Archangel. Nice to meet you all. Our God is a consuming fire. This is nothing. <laughs> this is not even a big deal. Come on, let me show you around. This is where they make the bricks, and this is how they lay them all out. Look, at, they're, normally in here, they're making all these cool bricks, and they're making those little blue ones and stuff. You can see there's, so, you know, What are they talking about? They're in the fiery furnace walking around, the Bible says. So are they taking a tour? They're not standing there looking out saying, okay, when the fire goes out, do we leave? Do we stay? What happens here? Never dawned on me before. But the Bible says they're walking around, and they're walking around with God. In the midst of a crisis, you're walking around with God. And if you'll just look up, you'll probably see Him. The problem with most crises is we spend our time in the crisis trying to dig our way out or looking down because we feel bad. And we forget to look up. We forget to, to reach out. We forget to open our hands and pray. We, need, we forget to say, God, are you here somewhere? Because I think if most of us would stop and look around, we'd find him. We'd find him. The fourth one looks like the son of God. And the Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Now we have a title for these guys. Come out and come here. So three guys are thrown in the fire, four guys are present in the fire, and three guys come out of the fire. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar wanted to meet the fourth guy? (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know, but he's already met the fourth guy. He's already heard the voice of the fourth guy. He's already been the influence of the fourth guy for the last decade or so. Now he's getting to meet this this fourth guy's sort sort of corporals, sort of lieutenants, the guys who follow after him so close that they know how he's going to respond. Come out here and come out and come here, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies... Now, think about this. There are maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 of the king's counselors around. What happens now? The guy who said, uh, King, three guys didn't deal. Three, 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 three guys didn't kneel. Those three guys over there. He's probably at the front of the line going, What in the world is going on now? They come to the front. Turbans not burned. Clothes aren't burned. Shoes aren't burned. Nothing's burned. Just the bonds. Just the bonds. Just the bonds that held them are gone. When you go through a crisis with God, the bonds that hold you go away. When you go through a crisis with God, the bonds that hold you are what burns off. It's the point. It's what God does in the face of what happens to us. When we go through a crisis with God, the bonds are the things that burn. The bonds are the things that burn. When you can say, I don't know whether God will save me or not from this thing, but I'm good with God no matter what happens. That's a bond being burned. And when on the other side of that thing, you are done with that thing, and you walk out saying, I had cancer, but it's gone. My marriage was on the rocks, but it's not. My finances were shot, but they're better. When you come out of that thing, the bonds are gone and the testimony that you have now is much bigger, much more powerful because you've lived it, not just thought about it. You've walked it, not just taught it. You've been there, you've not just heard about it. God's loosed the bonds and the next stage of your spiritual walk will be better, stronger, deeper, more powerful than it's ever been before. Because crisis burns The bonds that hold you back. Crisis destroys the bonds, not the bound. Crisis destroys the bonds, not the bound. You can't destroy the follower of God. All you can destroy are the things that are binding them. The ultimate and final destruction of those bonds is an eternal one. The end of the day, Jesus ends all of the bonds that sin has wrapped around our life. And the walk that we walk on the earth slowly takes those things away and peels them off. Until you go from being hogtied on the ground by your sins to being upright and standing. And then being one of those who waddle because your feet are still tied. And then you have your hands open and your feet loose. And you begin to walk and run and represent God in whatever circumstances you're around. Because you've been through some crises with him and found that when you went into the furnace, there were not just three, there were four. This is the difference. This is what God is trying to show us. The king and his counselors gathered together. They saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected by the smell of the fire. They didn't even smell like they'd been in a furnace. The whole place stinks like this furnace. These guys smell like roses. Why? Because there were three guys thrown in the fire and four in there. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed is, blessed be God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Nebuchadnezzar now makes the testimony for those guys and their God. He doesn't just make a testimony. He makes a declaration. Ne- Nebuchadnezzar makes a declaration, and they have frustrated the king's word, they frustrated my word, and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Is he impressed by this? Absolutely impressed by this. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here we go again, Shall be cut into pieces and their houses will be made an ash heap. He's still a pagan king. He's still an all powerful ruler. But it's changed the direction of his assault. He said, these guys gave their body for their faith. Anybody who says anything bad about them or their God, chopped into little pieces in their houses as sheep (laughs) because there's no other God who can deliver like this there's no other God who can deliver like this there's no other God who can deliver you have God prime you get free delivery (laughs) took a little minute for that to catch up with you didn't it The God of the universe delivers. He delivers your life and mine. He delivers in your home and mine. He delivers in your wallet and mine. He delivers in your family and mine. He delivers in our home. He delivers personally. He comes when you're in the crisis and where three are thrown in, four are standing. Or one is thrown in, two are standing. Because God never promised us that we would not face crises or difficulty. He just promised that we wouldn't face them alone. Let's pray. Father, we have faced different sorts of things. Some of us have brought those things fully on ourselves and we look in the mirror and know we created the problem we find ourselves in. Some of us have been affected by somebody else's bad choice or bad influence. Some of us are just facing things that are a result of being part of this planet. No one escapes alive until you get back to rescue us. Or whatever we face... Lord, help us to follow this example. Give us enough opportunities to say yes today that when tomorrow comes, we're able to say it again. Give us enough of those little things where we can stop ourselves and say, no, God would rather I did this, where we can hear your spirit and answer that when we face something really hard, we'll be ready. Help us to discover more stories like this one, ancient ones and modern ones, Help us to hear more testimonies of people who found themselves in the fire and they weren't by themselves. So that when we have to face something hard, whether it be in the life that we live, just in the place where we are, in that final challenge that faces Revelation chapter 13, where governments of the world unite and say, you have to worship this way or else where we'll be able to stand next to the most powerful people in the world and say, you know, we don't really want to be in an argument with you, but we can't worship that. We worship a living God who delivers. And if he wants to, he can deliver us. And if he doesn't, next thing we'll see is Jesus, so we're cool. Help us to have that kind of deep, abiding, truth-based faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.